Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today I am so excited to have author Christy Woodson Harvey on to discuss The Wedding Veil, which is a sweeping new novel following four women across generations bound by a beautiful wedding veil and a connection to the famous Vanderbilt family. If somehow you do not know Christy Woodson Harvey, a little about her, she's the New York Times bestselling author of nine novels, including Under the Southern Sky, which is fabulous and the Peachtree Bluff series which is in development for television with NBC. Her writing has appeared in numerous online and print publications including Southern Living and USA Today. She was a finalist for the Southern Book Prize. Christy is the co-creator and co-host of the weekly web show and podcast Friends in Fiction, which I'm a huge fan of. She blogs with her mom Beth Woodson on Design Chic and loves connecting with fans on ChristyWoodsonHarvey.com. She lives on the North Carolina coast with her husband and son, where she is always working on her next novel. Christy, thank you so much for coming on A Bookish Home and congratulations on The Wedding Veil. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me, Laura. I'm so excited and that made me laugh. I am always working working on my next novel. I am. <laughs> well, we're glad you're always working on your next novel because this is one of those books where I feel like I was in mourning when it was over because I had oh. been like so swept away, just loved the characters. And it was such a treat to get to like curl up with it every time I had some time and then it was over and I was so sad. So I'm glad you're always working on a new novel. <laughs> that is so nice. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I loved this. Um, I want to share one review that I really loved from the New York Journal of Books, which I think just captured the novel so perfectly. So they write, the book is um, masterfully woven, a literary home run. This split time narrative will delight readers of both contemporary and historical novels. As with all her books, Harvey delivers her trademark glamour and lighthearted spirit, all while weaving in fashion, architectural design, and the dramas that play out in daily life. It's a delightful, well-shaped novel that leaves readers with a burst of joy in the end. Um, I love that. So um, I love that too. Yeah. (laughs) So can you tell listeners a bit about um, this new book, The Wedding Veil? Absolutely. So this is my first historical contemporary novel. So it means so much when I hear, you know, nice comments from people like you, because it is a little nerve wracking, you know, to do something new and to do something different. And, uh, but I just really uh, became very interested in Edith Vanderbilt. And I kept saying that someone should write a book about her, never imagining that it would be me. (laughs) But um, the book opens in 1914 when George Vanderbilt, who built Biltmore Estate, um, has just passed away. And so Edith and her daughter Cornelia, who was 13 years old, are left in a very different financial situation than they would have imagined, simply because um, the vast majority of what was left of George Vanderbilt's fortune was willed to his daughter Cornelia, and she would not receive it till she was 25 years old. So um, the two of them sort of bond together and vow that they are not only going to save Biltmore Estate and really the town of Asheville, which at the point they basically owned almost all of, um, but that they're also going to preserve George Vanderbilt's legacy at all costs. But when their ideas about what that looks like start to go in a different direction, there starts to be a bit of conflict in the story. 
And so in the present day part of the story, Julia is getting ready to walk down the aisle and her grandmother Babs is placing this beautiful family wedding veil on her head that has become this symbol of you know good luck and long marriage and all of these wonderful things. And Julia sort of panics because she knows that she is going to be the one to sully the name of the family wedding veil if she wears it because she knows that in that moment that her marriage is not going to last. And so uh, she runs away. Babs drives the getaway car. Um, and both of these women find themselves at these really major crossroads in their lives where um, they have to make some really big decisions about what they're going to do moving forward. And so for all four of the women in this story, this wedding veil becomes the symbol of what they have to let go of in order to move forward into the next chapter of their lives. It's woven together so beautifully. And um, I love the dual timeline historical fiction and, and books with multiple points of view. And But sometimes it's rare to have a book where you're so invested in each point of view and both timelines and you're not sort of like racing to get to, you know, either the past or the present or, or a particular character. I just was so drawn to all of their perspectives and stories. And um, I love the way you capture the granddaughter-grandmother relationship in the present day and then the mother-daughter relationship in the past and just the complexities of those. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering, it it seems to be that they all fit together so wonderfully in terms of having these common themes and, and kind of the intrigue with the wedding veil. And I'm just sort of wondering how you came up with all this and what the inspiration was. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, well, thank you, first of all. But um, in 2018, so a few years ago, um, we were we live in Beaufort, North Carolina, and on the coast, and the, there was a big hurricane coming towards Beaufort, and um, Jim Cantore came to town. I don't know if you know him, but you know when Jim Cantore from the Weather Channel comes to town, you run because he's <laughs> he's always where the bad stuff is happening. So we <laughs> so we decided to evacuate and go to Asheville, North Carolina, which. Um, it's one of our favorite places. And I actually grew up just a few hours from there. So I had been to Biltmore, you know, plenty of times in my life, but our son was six at the time and he had never been. So we thought, well, this will be fun. You know, we'll take him to Biltmore. And I just became really intrigued by Edith Vanderbilt in particular on that trip, because I had not realized until then what a young widow she was and how she was left in these sort of dire straits when George died. Um, and she really made it her life mission to you know, save this home for our future generations, which, um, you know, her work was really the foundation of, you know, saving this real gem during a time when many homes of that size and scope were just torn down because people couldn't afford them anymore. Um, and so I just became really interested in, in how she did what she did, how she saved Biltmore, but more importantly, why? Because at some point, you know, yes, it's a beautiful home. And yes, it's a symbol of a man that you loved. But also at some point it becomes kind of an albatross, you know, mm. um, especially, you know, this is 1914. I mean, women can't even vote. So, you know, you have this woman who's taking on this monumental task alone. And so I went home and I started reading about her and I couldn't really find the answers to the questions that I was looking for. And I really, I really did. I said to author friends, you should write a book about her. She's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of put this to the side and fast forward about 18 months and I was back in the mountains 
my cousin Sydney was getting married and um, she was wearing uh, my wedding veil, which was passed along to me by my sister-in-law, which was worn by many generations in, in my husband's family. So it was kind of this family heirloom of my husband's. And we had decided that we thought it would be fun to have, you know, women that we loved that were really important to us in our lives also wear this beautiful wedding veil. So I'm putting the wedding veil on my cousin Sydney's head. And I said, isn't it cool that this veil connects us to all of these women that we will never know. And she was like, that is cool. And we sort of locked eyes and we were both like, that's a book. (laughs) I'm like, I'm so sorry. You're about to walk down the aisle and it's always about the book. Um, So I knew right away that I would write this book and I knew it was going to be called The Wedding Veil. But when I pitched the idea to my agent, who's kind of my, you know, first line of who I pitch ideas to, um, she said, gosh, I love that idea. And she said, but I know you know, you've had some, you love historical fiction and you've had some thoughts about writing historical fiction. And she said, what if you write about a real wedding veil? And I was like, you know, how am I ever going to find a real wedding veil that was worn by a woman that I was so interested in that I'm going to spend a year of my life researching her. But of course I'm a nice Southern girl. So I said, what a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, um, all of that to say, I did not plan on doing this at all, but I was at home one night and I was up. I just couldn't sleep. And for some reason, Edith Vanderbilt popped into my head and I thought, what if she had an interesting wedding veil? And so I Googled Edith Vanderbilt wedding veil really quick. And the story came up about this family heirloom veil worn by Edith and her sisters and her mother and her daughter, Cornelia. And then it disappeared. And I literally felt like I had been handed this historical contemporary novel because now I could write about this real wedding veil whereby these real women that I was really interested in learning about, but I could also um, have this connection to the present day and answer the question of, you know, what did happen to the Vanderbilt veil? That is so cool. I, it just seems like one of those times where the book is meant to be. And I um, totally agree. I mean, yeah. I think this book found me. I really do. And I, I feel like that sometimes with stories, sometimes it's just like, oh, here's a story I'm writing that I came up with. And then sometimes I'm like, no, this story found me. And you mentioned Under the Southern Sky. And that was another one that I really was like, Oh, the story found me, you know. Oh, can we hear about that? I loved Under the Southern Sky. Absolutely. Um, No, it's definitely a favorite of mine, but that was one too that just had been brewing for years. So my first book, Dear Carolina, came out in 2015 and it was right before that book was about to release. And I was just at a party with some friends and um, one of my friends pulled me aside. She had just had twins um, via in vitro. And she pulled me aside and she said, oh my gosh, we have all of these leftover frozen embryos and we have to decide what to do with them. And she said, you know, this never occurred to us. It never crossed our minds one time that after we had our babies, we were going to have to figure out what to do with what was left. And um, it kind of started me on this path because I, I realized then how connected people become to these embryos and how they feel like you know, almost like they're children, you know, they're very important to people. Um, And she said, you know, they're, I think it's hard to understand unless you've been through it. And she said, but so many people are going to have to be making these decisions. And I think you should write a book about it. And I knew right then that like, I would, I was like, one day I'll write a book about this. Um, But, you know, it was something on the back burner for a while. And I had these little bits and pieces of story idea. And I keep all these different Word documents on my computer of like bits and pieces of story idea. And so another story idea that I kind of had was um, about a man who decides to hire a surrogate and become a single father, because I thought that would be kind of an interesting dynamic. 
Um, and then, and I knew, you know, if I wrote a story about frozen embryos and um, something like that, that someone would have to have died because I thought that really raised the stakes. I thought, you know, how could I make people really care about this story? So I was talking to a friend of mine um, and I was saying to her, you know, I have this meeting with my agent and I have all these different story ideas. And here are a few that I'm thinking about pitching to her. And we were just talking through some of the logistics of things. And she said to me, she was in PA school at the time. And she was like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm delivering my you know, first baby tomorrow. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And, you know, we were just chatting. I mean, just like a friend conversation, but kind of talking about work too. So the next day she called me and she said, I don't know if you have made a decision and I don't know if you were looking for a sign for your next book. And she said, but I, the baby that I just delivered was via a surrogate and um, the man, the father of these children lost his wife five years ago and unfroze their embryos, hired a surrogate and had these, this baby. And she was like, so I don't know if you were looking for a story and she's like, but this is your story. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's my story. And it was this kind of amalgamation of these two different things that I'd been thinking about writing kind of like combined into one. And it just felt like we had literally been talking about it the day before. So like for that to happen, would just seemed absolutely unbelievable. That is incredible. And I, it reminds me, I don't know if you ever read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. It reminds yes. me of that. Yes. yes. Of like the inspiration and story finding you. Yes. And- that like universal consciousness. And it happens. I mean, we've, you and I were talking about friends of fiction earlier a little bit, but it happens to all of us now too, which is so funny because I feel like we're, we talk all the time and we're, you know, kind of all in the, and um, my book that's coming out in 2023, my protagonist was named Ivy like unbeknownst to any of the ladies. And then Mary Kay's book came out, her Christmas book came out and her protagonist was Ivy. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to change it. So I changed her name to Lanier and I'm reading the home records. And one of the characters in the book is Lanier. And I was like, how do we keep doing this? And we were just, we were laughing so hard. Like we, you know, I'll share a brain now, but there is something funny. And like in the little ways and the big ways, you do kind of feel that, you know, sort of that consciousness sometimes. Yeah. Well, that was going to be one of my questions too, because I know from listening to friends in fiction, I'm so fascinated by all of, all of your writing processes, but I'm such a historical fiction fan too. And I love hearing about the way Kristen Harmel and Patty Callahan Henry, like dive into their, the, the world of the past in their books and do all that research and just really dive into that. And I was curious, like if that was something that made you want to take the leap too, just because it, it sounds so fun and exciting. I know you have the journalism background too. So I didn't know if that was part of it, but yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so I had actually started writing The Wedding Veil, like right before we started Friends in Fiction. And I mean, I I was friends with Kristen and Patty, but not like now. (laughs) I mean, you know, I wasn't like quite as deeply into their worlds, I guess, as I am now. Um, So I don't know. I mean, historical fiction has always been a favorite genre of mine to read. And I, I, I won't tell, this is like sort of a not a great story without telling you who it is, but uh, I have always known that I would write historical fiction. I feel like um, because I just, it's a, it's a genre that I love so much and I'm so interested in. And there's kind of a big project that I know, you know, I, I will do one day. It's like a, it's like in the in the back of my mind, like a woman that I really want to write about um, that I knew I would sort of take on one day. And I guess, 
you know, I'd been playing around with that. I had been researching for that book, knowing that it was such a massive amount of research that I probably wouldn't do it right now. But I think it kind of like opened the door a little bit for me to be like, okay, well, I'm not going to write this full historical, you know, tome about this woman's life today. Cause I think I need to, you know, do a little more beforehand, but, um, but I, you know, was down that research path and I kind of knew what I was working on and, and being in North Carolina, you know, I live in North Carolina. This is a North Carolina story. Um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill to journalism school. So I had a lot of good contacts, especially in like libraries and with North Carolina collections and things like that, who could really help kind of guide me. Um, And obviously in journalism school, you learn so much about research and primary sources and how to like dig really deep into things that you might not be able to find otherwise. But, you know, it was a few years ago. So, um, (laughs) So it was really helpful because I was able to actually go to the libraries. Um, and, and there was actually like a librarian there that really helped me like, this is new, you need to do this, like you need to look at this. And um, so that was really helpful. But I do think once you start doing that research, it gave me this level of confidence. Like now that I've done it one time, I'm like, okay, this is something I can do again, because now I know how to do it. And I think that there is a big hurdle to that of figuring out, you know, how to do this research and, you know, what it takes to be able to do it. Um, and it was so funny because while I was writing the story, I, I kept saying, I'm not going to write about real people anymore, except this one book that like, I know I'm going to write, but I was like, I'm not going to write about real people anymore. Like, it's really stressful. I feel really responsible for their stories. I'm like really worried about getting it right. And there's so many different versions of, you know, every story that you read, you know, there are a million different versions of the quote truth. And, um, and then of course now the book's out and I have like, 10 more people that I'm like, well, I have to write about her. And like, well, she needs a book. And like, how does no one know her story? And I think what happens is that people are reading the wedding veil. And so they'll come to me on tour and they'll say, have you ever thought about writing about so-and-so? And And I'm like, I don't even know who that is. And then I'll look them up and I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. And it's reminding me of, um, Oh, why am I blanking on her name? The Paris wife author. Um, um, Paula McLean. Paula McLean. I've listened to yes. interviews where she's talked about how, because she she does so many books where she's really taking a, a lesser known woman's life and bringing her to life and how she'll be on tour. And someone's like, you should write about this person. You should write about that person. You should write about that person. So, okay, Well, um, talk about the uh, the consciousness. I was with Paula for the last two days. What? <laughs> oh my God. Yes. I dinner at her house and we were oh in Cleveland. God. We did a friends eviction event in Cleveland and she came to the event last night and or night before last. And we had dinner at her house the night before. And yeah, she's wonderful. I love her. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I am also a, a aspiring historical fiction writer. And um, I, I just love hearing her. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I, um, I, I love just hearing about everybody's process and how, you know, like a story idea just kind of like nudges at you until you until you go for it. But I would love to hear, um, you know, for myself and other people listening who um, do love historical fiction and um, maybe writing historical fiction, I would love to hear a little more about how you kind of immersed yourself in this time period and and tried to capture her voice. And I know you mentioned a little bit about digging into the sources. I read a little bit about how because the Vanderbilts were so famous. You did see some things that were made. Like, had you not dug a little more, you would have thought they were true. Yeah. So I'd love to hear, just hear a little bit about your process. 
<laughs> yes, that is so true. Um, yeah, I was so shocked by that because, you know, again, going back to journalism school, you always learned like rely on your primary sources. And so I knew it was actually funny. I learned sort of early on, there's not a ton written about Edith and Cornelia. Um, and so I read, you know, every book that I could get my hands on and The Last Castle obviously being like the most notable and famous and and perfectly, perfectly researched and executed. Um, but there were some other books that I would, you know, I'd be reading things and I would think, well, I know from my research that that can't be right. Like, and it would be simple things like dates or something that I'm like, that's not possible. And it's like published in a book. Again, last not the last castle was absolutely flawlessly amazing. Um, I don't know how she took that on. It was incredible. Um, but, but I, I really, so I thought I really need to go back in, in time. And I really need to go back to the primary resources and make sure that like, I am verifying my facts as much as I can. It's fiction, you know? So I, right. I, I obviously there were things about, there are things about these women's lives that I will never know um, that I made up. I mean, there are things that, I found three versions of a story. One seemed the most plausible, but door number three walked me down my story path the best. So that's the <laughs> one I chose. I mean, you know, I, I am I am very upfront about the fact that I made the story up. Like this is this is not a true representation necessarily of Edith and Cornelia, but I did try to stick to the facts as much as I possibly could. Um, so I, you know, went newspapers.com was my very best friend and I literally think that I've read every magazine or newspaper article ever written about these two women, which is a lot like down oh, to the, God. like, you know, Edith Vanderbilt appeared at the blah, blah, blah luncheon. And she ate the, you know, quail with the blah. I mean, <laughs> it is a lot. Um, but all those little details, you know, really, really helped inform the story. But one of the things, the story that you're kind of referring to, I think that I found out like right away that was just totally untrue and, still makes me laugh is there I found all these articles about Cornelia Vanderbilt attending UNC Chapel Hill or rather not all of these articles but there was a big article that was syndicated in a ton of different newspapers and so when they were syndicated they were syndicated in slightly different ways so I might have to read like 30 different versions of the same article because um they were cut in different places, you know, to fit the sizes of the newspaper. So I might read, you know, 10 or 12 different versions of an article, but like number 10 had this really critical piece of information in it that the rest of them didn't have because the rest of them had cut it off earlier or something like that. But um, one of the things that really, I went to UNC, so I was really excited about that. And I thought, you know, this is 1918, it's World War One, it's, um, you know, the Spanish flu, there are all these really interesting things happening on campus at that time. The men were off at war. It had become a um, research facility um, for the military. Two university presidents died. I was deep into this. I thought this is, this is going to be an entire like storyline segment for me of this book. And so the thing that kind of bugged me just a little bit right off the bat was that the article was from 1918. And I knew that women couldn't attend Chapel Hill all four years until they were juniors. And this would have made Cornelia 18 years old, but it wasn't a huge, it was like a little bit of a mm, ping, but it wasn't like a huge red flag because she attended Miss Madeira's in Washington, DC, which is Madeira. Now it still is there and still exists. And at the time it was a high school and a college. And of course, like this is a, a woman who has traveled all over the world. She's had tutors, she has access to things that other people do not. So the idea that she could have had technically two years of college under her belt in some way, shape or form was not 
you know, unheard of. So I reached out to somebody at UNC Libraries and they connected me with um, the General Alumni Association who said, well, you know, there were 20 women that attended UNC in 1918. So this will be fast and easy research. Um, and in the meantime, I found another version of this article quoting George Vanderbilt about how excited he was about his daughter pursuing her higher education. And I looked up at the date again and I looked back at my notes and I was like, Okay, well, this article was written in 1918, and George Vanderbilt died in 1914. So that makes this a little bit unlikely. Um, And, of course, I heard back from the Alumni Association the next day that they didn't have any record of her ever attending. Um, But, you know, the librarian and I actually talked about it, and he was like, you know, I mean – you've got the primary sources, you've got the quote proof. If you're really married to this storyline, you could probably get away with it. And I was like, yeah, but you know, I do want it to be as close to the truth as it can be. So I ended up not doing it, but, um, but that was really early on. And it was a real lesson to me, like, okay, I really need to check things and, um, and make sure, you know, that I am getting my facts as close to right as I possibly can. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I don't, I don't think I had really, thought much before this about them sort of being um, almost like tabloid sensations of their day where people would just make up stuff about them. Yeah. And, you know, I will say I hadn't really thought about that either when I started this. And uh, I think one of the things that made me even more careful about it is I talked to someone, I talked to a family member of Cornelia's really, really early on. And she said to me something that I never would have found in my research that never would have really crossed my mind, but made so much sense and ended up informing her entire story for me. But, you know, to your point, she said, Cornelia never asked for this. Like she was not asked to be born, um, you know, being chased by every photographer and newspaper everywhere in the world for her entire life. That was not something that, um, but she was probably the most notable and recognizable woman of her day, or certainly one of them. Um, And it, it sort of, you know, it changed her life in really big ways that I think you read about and maybe hopefully come to understand a little bit in the book. Yeah, it makes her a really fascinating character to read about for sure. Um, Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask, you know, I love following along with everything you're doing, your book events and friends in fiction and you, your pace with writing is amazing, which is great for us readers. We constantly have a new, a new book to read, but I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what is your writing routine like? How do you sort of manage all the different hats that you wear and still kind of um, be able to really immerse yourself in these, in these books that kind of sweep us away. Um, It's a work in progress. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. And you know, I I think we've all said this um, about friends of fiction in particular, that if someone had come to us two years ago and said, Hey guys, um, would you be interested in starting this thing? You'll do it every Wednesday night for like at least the next two years, but probably longer. And, you know, you'll have meetings about it every week and you'll have this really big schedule and you'll go on tour together and, you know, you'll have be doing advertisers and finances and, you know, all merchandise and all of these things. We all would have been like, um, (laughs) absolutely not. Like, (laughs) no, there's no way that we could do this. Um, but I think the fact that, you know, it came out of COVID was really um, sort of fateful because, you know, none of us were on the road. And so we had all this time where we weren't traveling, we weren't touring, we were home. And so this was the way that we got to stay in contact with our readers and with each other, um, you know, every single week. And it was absolutely wonderful. And so I think as, 
it's not so different from really anything else. I think, you know, as the world has started to open up again, we've just had to kind of reassess our lives and what we're doing. And, you know, I can tell you for sure, we've all made changes in our lives in order to be able to continue to accommodate having the show because we love it. Um, but I think for me, and you know, getting up in the morning and writing very first is extremely important um, because that's the, that's my time to like put something out before everything's kind of coming in, if that makes sense. So yeah. um, I really try to like, you know, take my son to school. Sometimes I work out before, sometimes I don't, but um, getting to the computer and putting those words on the page, I really feel like after like 10 a.m., it's hard because my day is not really my own anymore at that point because, you know, everybody's like been at the office, they're working, um, you know, and everything sort of starts to come at you at that point. And so being able to get those words in in the morning has been really, really critical for me, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and like carving that out first. Well, I'm sure given um, friends in fiction and and um, being out on the road with other authors and everything, you probably have been reading um, some great books lately. Do you have recommendations to share oh with um, listeners? I have read so many great books recently and y'all are going to be mad at me because some of them aren't out quite yet, but they're coming. So I'm giving you like a little <laughs> heads up. Um, so first, The Homewreckers by Mary Kay Andrews, which I was just talking about, but that one just came out um, and it's fantastic. I have heard from so many people and I totally agree that they think it's her best book, which is incredible because it's her 30th novel in 30 years. Yeah. (laughs) She's amazing. I can't wait to read that one. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, we talked about, so I have to give a shout out to all my my friends and fiction girls, but Kristen Harmel's um, The Forest of Vanishing Stars just came out in paperback um, like a week or on Tuesday. So just a few days ago. Um, It's amazing. It's one of my favorite books of last year. So if someone by chance did not read it in hardback. They definitely need to pick that up. And the same um, Patty Callahan's surviving Savannah just came out in paperback too. And it's just absolutely beautiful. So two works of historical fiction, you know, that are just wonderful. Yeah. Um, Rochelle Weinstein's when we let go is about to come out. I absolutely loved that book. Um, I got to blurb that one. Um, The Vibrant Years by Sonali Dev is actually, it's sitting on my desk. It's right beside me. I just started it and I can tell already, like, it's just going to be fantastic. I love her books and she does these amazing, um, you know, retellings. And anyway, I think she always does such a good job. Rachel Linden has a new book coming out called The Magic of Lemon Drop Pie. I got a really, really early read of that one, but I just loved it. I read it in like a day and that doesn't happen that much. Normally I like really pace myself because I'm like, I've got, you know, all these other things to do and I'm only giving myself, you know, 90 minutes or whatever it is. And I really just um, could not put that one down. Um, Jamie Brenner's new uh, Guilt is getting ready to come out. It was so fantastic. I loved that one. Um, It's going to be a really good summer for books. Yeah. Oh, it seems like it. I'll have to link to those. And I was also thinking as you were talking, if I were playing friends in fiction bingo with the podcast, now that I've had you on, I get like, I get bingo because <laughs> I've had all the ladies on now, which is so fun. And I'll definitely link to, um, I did That's an episode. Awesome. Yeah. I'll link to the episode about Forest of Vanishing Stars, which I loved. And, um, uh, and Once Upon a Wardrobe we did, and I've had Mary Kay on um, for past books. So I'll link to all of those if other people are friends and fiction junkies like I am. And um, <laughs> and it's just so fun to get to um, hear what you're all working on. And um, and actually, that was going to be one of my other questions about the, the book that is coming up next. Yeah. 
I'm so excited. Um, okay, so the next book is called The Summer of Songbirds. And it is something I've actually been working on for a while. Um, I got the idea for it. Uh, and I guess it was the summer of 2020. Our son you know, was registered for camp and he couldn't go. And so there's this great camp here um, that is kind of like this iconic camp that's been there forever and ever and ever. And instead of doing, you know, the regular summer camp, they offered family camp because they were able to do that in a way that was sort of more COVID friendly. And so I was at this camp and we went with a bunch of friends and we had the best time. And the whole time I was there, I just felt like these stories were like coming out of the walls of this, you know, old summer camp. So, um, and I thought, what could be more fun to write in a pandemic than a book about a summer camp? <laughs> it sounds yeah. great. So um, it's a, it's a story about these three best friends who, met at summer camp when they were children and are, you know, still friends in their thirties now. And one of their aunts actually owns this camp that is in danger of closing um, because of, you know, the pandemic year. The book is not about the pandemic though. I think I, we barely mentioned that, but it is a factor in the closing of the camp. And so this is, you know, fast forward a couple of years and she's realizing she's not going to be able to really, you know, make a go of it anymore after that one really bad year. Um, and so these three women get together and decide that they are going to save the summer camp that all changed, that changed all of their lives in this variety of ways. Oh, and so that's sort of happening at like the periphery of the story, but kind of the meat of the story that's going on is, um, one of my protagonists, Daphne, is a is an attorney, and she finds out something about her best friend Lanier's fiance that is protected by attorney client privilege. And so she has to decide whether she is going to tell her friend and get disbarred, or she is going to let her marry this man, knowing what she knows about him. Um, and Lanier and Daphne are almost more like sisters for reasons that you read about in the book. So this is a really big decision for her. Um, but Lanier has a secret that Daphne does not know. And when and if she finds out, it will change the way that she feels about all of this. Oh, that sounds so good. I can't wait to read it. And I love that title, Summer Songbirds. That's so good. Thank you. Um, I, does that, that one come um, It comes out April 25th, 2023. Oh. And sorry, I cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh, no. I was just going to say it was one of those random titles that just came to me like at some bizarre time. I was like walking down the street and I was like, Summer of Songbirds. Wow. It just popped into my head. It was it so weird. sounds so lovely. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, Christy, I loved chatting with you so much. Um, I'm, I'm sad our time is over. <laughs> I could talk to you all thank day. Thank you about for work. having me. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on and um, congrats again on the wedding veil. Um, oh, and actually, I meant to just say, um, I was so excited to see that you have a series in development for TV. Is there any news yes. on kind of when that's coming? I don't have any news on when that's coming. In fact, I actually um, have a call about it later this week. So hopefully I will have some more news soon. But um, but yeah, I, I got to write the pilot with a couple of writers um, from who actually work on Sweet Magnolias, which was really fun. Oh, and um, so the, the pilot is ready and, you know, hopefully... We'll get we'll get to hear about next steps really soon. So you know, oh. I'll keep everybody posted. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, congratulations on that as well. Um, well, Thank best of luck you. with all your projects and have a great rest of the day. Best of luck with your project too. Oh, I'm so excited you. for you. Thank you so much. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com, and there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization Bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home, 
I'm also sharing there all of the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports a bookish home and independent bookstores. So it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org shop slash a bookish home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.